You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You know, we think about charities as though they are something very different than businesses. And there are indeed differences between charitable organizations and business organizations. But you really have to form, most nonprofits are corporations. You have to form a corporation to become a 501c3. And there are some exceptions to that. But when we think of charities, we often think of them as different entities because of purpose primarily. But ultimately, charities are trying to do many of the same things as businesses are, while they're not set up to make profit as a primary driver, that's not a primary objective. They do try to accumulate enough in the way of reserves to have rainy day funds, so to speak. They also seek to hire the best people and have the best systems in place to move their missions forward. And they also try to do things like scale their organizations so that they can achieve more many of the same things that businesses do. And so I wanted to really talk about this a little bit today. I wanted to get into some of the similarities that we see between nonprofits and businesses, particularly as it relates to growing them and achieving more. And so I thought I would have someone who's worked in all three of our sectors share some time with us today to talk about how nonprofits can scale their operations, how they can grow, how they can even transform their organizations. Many businesses have to transform their operations and nonprofits have to do that too, depending on what's going on in their environment so that they can achieve their missions. So today to have this conversation, I'm with Martin Marty Rogers. We call him Marty. And Marty is Accenture's market unit lead for the U.S. South, as well as the office managing director for the Washington, D.C. metro area. And by the way, that happens to be the company's largest office in North America. Marty leads over 22,000 people in the South marketing unit, spanning 15 states. And he is responsible for clients, offices, community involvement, which is really a that's something I'm excited about, and the financial performance of that market unit. And he's also a member of the Accenture Global Management Committee and the North America Leadership Team. Marty, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. 
Art, thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Sounds like a, an amazing uh, set of topics we're going to cover, and I can't think of anybody better to to address the topics with, or or a podcast better to be on to address those topics. Well, it's great to have you, Marty. I've been looking forward to a chance to talk to you and bring you into this podcast community that we've been creating. Marty, the whole theme of this podcast is to encourage people to give and serve. And that's something that you've been doing throughout your whole career and even before. I wanted to know, Marty, from just from an everyday person standpoint, what was it early in your life maybe that drove you to finding a way to intersperse service and community into your work life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, I have to say in terms of my early days that I think we share in common that we are both from Philadelphia. And that's actually part of the story, right? It's it's very much a part of who I am and where I come from. And I say all the time that we have the joy of both being from America City, the birthplace of democracy and the home of freedom, not to mention the fact that all of our sports teams are on fire right now. So delighted to share that with you. It is kind of the apex of, of, of sports uh, reality after many, many years of suffering together. Um, but I also would just say that that is also part of my story and my journey. So being originally from Philadelphia, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in Norristown and Bluebell. My father, who is one of my primary role models and folks that when you, you know you look back at who shaped who you are and who you aspire to be, not you know, both of those are equally important. I get that a lot of that from my dad. My dad was a amazing man of grace. He was one of the first African-Americans to go to the University of Notre Dame, where I eventually went. He would come back to Philadelphia, which was his hometown. He was raised in North Philly and West Philly. He would become, he went to Temple Med School. He would become one of the very few black faculty members there early on and worked in the med school there. And part of the way that art that he became part of the med school there and began working in that space was the fact that he was asked to leave Philadelphia and to go to the suburbs and to work at the time with a nun who had asked him to help them integrate what was called Sacred Heart Hospital at the time. And so we as African-Americans and as doctors back then, you could not serve your patients when they went to the hospital. You didn't have visiting privileges. So just think about that for the second for a second. When they needed you the most, you had to hand them over to somebody else uh, to take care of them, which is just ridiculous. But there was a nun who was willing to take a chance on my dad because he had gone to Notre Dame and said, you know what, we're going to break these rules. So he became the uh, first person to uh, African-American to have visiting privileges out in the suburbs, out in at, uh, Sacred Heart Hospital. And when she did that, she so shamed the public hospital, which was next door, Montgomery Hospital, that they gave him visiting privileges there too. And so that journey, that sense of giving back, that sense of making a difference was always just part of how I was raised and part of the example that I got from my dad. And then the last story I would just give you, again, for this, for the purpose here, I'll just share a story from my dad. I remember as a small boy, and I don't know what was happening. I think mom wasn't feeling well. We had to go into work with dad. And that was a rare thing and a crazy thing. And we didn't have, you know, take your kids to work day back then. But the one thing I remember was I was playing on the floor of his office and there was a homeless person that came in 
and my dad ran uh, a clinic for Mother Teresa's sisters, and he ran a. He also took care of uh, everybody in, in Norristown that, that needed the help, which was a, still a very poor area of, of, uh, of Pennsylvania. And so I still remember to this day my dad interacting with this homeless person and taking this homeless person's jacket. It was a, a blazer that was tattered and in bad disrepair. And he removed his jacket from the hanger it was on, and he hung up this individual's jacket. And he did it with such care and concern and a, a sense of real, really being present that it's always stuck with me. And that uh, common humanity, that common sense of uh, we're here to serve and to make a difference embodied in that moment has been something that stuck with me, whether it was national and community service or public service or client service or military service or anything else along the way. Yeah. Wow. I love doing these shows. I always learn something that is just truly moving. I mean, that story is just, uh, it's just powerful. And I can certainly see, Marty, how that has stuck with you. And it's manifested itself throughout your career. You've had some really powerful and important moments throughout your career where you've begun to make, where you help make a difference. I think you were part of the creation of some really key legislation that started AmeriCorps, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, or to that to that point, right? Again, this is once you have this, you know, what your podcast is trying to advance this notion of giving of your time and your talent and treasure. Once you get started on that journey and you see what a difference each of us can make according to our gifts, according to our station in life, according to where we are, we all have gifts, right? Every single person has gifts uh, to give back. And I have been extraordinarily blessed. I gave the example of my dad, but I've also had all of these amazing heroes and sheroes art that have informed my journey, my, my views of leadership, my, my definition of leadership as being inextricably linked to, to service and to giving back. And this idea that all of these amazing heroes and sheroes, mentors and sponsors that have literally bent the course of our U.S. history, but also world history, these people that have bent the, the arc of the moral universe, as Dr. King used to say, and so having the chance to work with Senator Harris Wofford from Pennsylvania, who had been a co-founder of the Peace Corps and a friend of Dr. King's, and to work with him and John Lewis to create a national day of service in honor of Dr. King that would be about service as the most fitting way to honor him with a, a day on, not a day off, a day of action, not apathy, a day of service, not shopping and sales. And then to go on and to be able to help create the first federal apprenticeship program that was modeled after what we had first done in Pennsylvania uh, with the Pennsylvania Youth Apprenticeship Program. But now, many years later, we're trying to advance that and, and to do it with companies from across the spectrum and trying to create the first federal, I'm sorry, the first national apprenticeship program that is driven by companies. And so it's the work that I'm doing in part now at Accenture. And we recently just created our Greater Washington Apprenticeship Network, but we've now done it in eight cities across the country. And we're trying to get employers all to come to the realization that we will either grow inclusively or we will not grow, right? We will bring all along or we won't. 
or none of us will go along, right? Like there won't be an opportunity to expand the pie unless everybody comes with us. And so that's where the apprenticeship network comes in. And then last but not least, to your point, Art, is just around the ability to work with a bipartisan group of senators to create the AmeriCorps program that now is over a million and a quarter folks that have served in the program. And to see young people out there that hear this call to service and to give in full-time meaningful service to give of their lives to make a difference for our country in, in a domestic Peace Corps and to do it in really great and amazing programs that are making a difference. And, and the important and critical thing there is they're making a difference. They're learning and growing. They're making the community better at the same time. And as amazing as their service is going to be during that one year or two years that they serve, just wait till you see them later as it has transformed them and transformed their lives in terms of what that's going to mean in terms of their ability to continue to serve and make a difference as they as they grow older from that seminal experience. And so, yeah, I, I've had the, the blessing to work with amazing folks from Senator Wofford to Congressman Lewis to other mentors, heroes and sheroes like Jeanetta Cole and Marion Wright Edelman and Father Ted Hesburgh and all these people that have truly defined service and leadership being one and the same. Well, you mentioned the apprenticeship program. I, some years ago, worked with Opportunities Industrialization Centers. Mm-hmm. And I had the chance to, to head that national organization for many years and later be its chair of the board. Yeah, thank you for your service. That is an amazing organization and doing great work. Thank you, Marty. Uh, I can tell you what it means to a person to have an opportunity to apprentice and to learn, and then to have that learning transform into real earnings and lifelong earnings and uh, career. Um, There's nothing that will change a person more than going from a place where they saw no opportunity to having that first step into apprentice program and then later on moving into full-time and career-long employment and, and lifelong learning for that matter. It's just such an important undertaking to get more people through opportunities like that, Marty. So uh, congratulations and thanks for what you're doing there. It's great. And we're we're happy to help to try to lead the way. We need other enterprises. I mean, you mentioned earlier at the top of the show how important it is for nonprofits to think of themselves as enterprises, but also for profits. We need both to step forward, right, and create opportunities for our youth to have meaningful employment and to learn the hard skills and the soft skills that are necessary to for employment and for uh, getting that first job, which is the key indicator for getting a job with a career ladder that is going to be, as you just mentioned, an opportunity to create wealth, wealth for that individual, wealth for their families, wealth for their neighborhoods, wealth for their community. But also this whole idea, right, that there is real power from being able to earn and learn at the same time and to see the lessons that, in terms of why is what I'm learning relevant when you see it in the workplace, you understand it right away why it's relevant. It's not some abstract thing. And then the ability to keep earning so that you can keep learning, right? Because you yep. know, we've all seen the challenge, challenges that, that many uh, folks face in terms of being able to afford continuing education. The fact that you bring the two together is mutually reinforcing and powerful. And then the last thing I would just say on this front, there is a real need. And this is the power of what happens when young people get this opportunity to go to the workplace. 
to open up their aperture and to be able to see and to help them imagine and to envision things that they they wouldn't otherwise have been able to be exposed to and possibilities that in terms of what they can do, who they can be, and the type of impact that they can make, it opens up a whole new aperture for them, a whole new dimension for them in terms of what's possible. It really does. I've seen it in millions of cases, oh, literally millions of cases, because we over the years we've trained millions of people at OIC. Marty, you know, one of the also amazing things about job training and what you're talking about through apprenticeships is that if everyone succeeds, we will more than have paid for the cost of training and getting them ready for these jobs because of what society will benefit from. Taxes, savings on crime, uh, savings from imprisonment, savings from uh, social programs that they now have to go through. And they'll be will be benefiting not only financially from what they bring, but they become great citizens, too. I mean, data has shown this year after year. And yet we have to fight, you know, to to find ways to to fund these kinds of programs. And I, I just don't understand it. OIC, we used to say, if we can just be successful with about a third of our people going through our mm-hmm. programs, we will more than have paid any financial cost associated with those kinds of programs. So we got some work to do to help people appreciate what it means. But unfortunately... Yeah, so, so our, if you don't mind, let, let me just chime in there for a second, right? Like we've been working in this area, we called it skills to succeed for the longest. And a while ago, we had this decision that we made, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's somewhere around 12 or 13 years ago. And we decided in our corporate citizenship we were letting a thousand flowers bloom, right? So we did the environment and we did healthcare and we did skilling and we did education and we did all these different things. And what we decided about 12 or 13 years ago was to say, you know what? We're just going to focus on one thing and one thing only. We're just going to do skilling. And so fast forward and we decided to do that. We focused all of our energy, all of our attention just on this one issue. And we got smarter, we got better. We started working with all of these different organizations, including OIC and others that were doing amazing work, but they were just little lights that were out there, right? And we had to, we had to bring them together and start scaling. And then what we realized, and, and again, because you're always trying to learn, you're always trying to go, grow, you're always making mistakes, you're always trying to innovate. But what we learned, Art, was that we couldn't scale if we just stayed on the corporate citizenship side of the fence. Right? Right. We had to move it over to our business, which is what you just mm-hmm. described. And we had to invite our clients to move it over to their business as well. And we had to stop talking about it and talking about what would work and actually do it ourselves. Right. And so what we found was, you know what, you just can't talk about, we use the term skill through alternative routes, meaning folks that are going to come join us that may not have a, a, a college degree or may not even have a high school degree. Well, you can't just talk about that in the, in the abstract. You can't just say, you know what, it'd be great if you all did that, but we're not going to do it. And so what we learned on this journey, Art, was that we actually had to step forward and lead ourselves, right? And so the first time we went out and we studied okay, well, how many jobs at Accenture could actually be without a four-year college degree? Because at the time, despite what we were saying, all of our jobs had, had that requirement. So then we started to study, and you know what we found, Art? First time around, 10% could be. And next time around, 20% could be. And now we think up to 40% of our jobs could be jobs without a college degree. Well, that's only part of the answer. The next step and the next thing you have to be courageous about is to say, 
okay, well, how many of those jobs are we actually going to fill with folks without a college degree and how are we going to source them and find them and, and do this? And that's where our apprenticeship network came in. And so right now, we just made a commitment in North America. We increased uh, our commitment up to 20% of our new hires are going to be folks that are coming through these alternative routes, including our apprenticeship program. 80% of those folks coming through alternative routes are not going to have a four-year degree. Most of them are going to have two-year degrees or less. Uh, and some of them, again, will just have completed their GED and and not a, not a full high school degree. And so, again, and, and we want to keep raising that up. And then to your point, Art, you know, what we have found is the business case, we didn't know the business case was going to be there, but the business case is there. And, and, you know, and again, these are things that you learn along the way, but the folks that are coming in, especially in this era of the great resignation and the great relocation and the great reflection and all this stuff, folks that come through our earn and learn program, what we call our apprenticeship program, they are so grateful that they're coming in. The retention is so much higher. Once they're successful, they want to keep being successful. So their willingness to go study and get additional certifications and to get additional, continue to advance and grow by studying more and getting getting more, we would use the term stackable credentials, right? It's, they're on fire, right? And they're so happy to be part of this firm. And that was a whole area that we only discovered because of what we were doing in corporate citizenship. But we also now realize we need to share this with everybody else, right? Like all the other folks, this isn't a, this isn't a competition among us and, and, uh, and other firms and, and competitors in that mindset. It has to be saying instead, you know what? All of you are, are out there, Art, and they're talking about, you know, all these people are out there saying, oh, I can't find the talent. I can't find the talent. The talent's right in front of you. <laughs> it's right in front of you, people. Like you just go do what we're doing. Grab it. Come with us. Look meet these folks, meet these people that have so much talent and just join us in this effort, join us in this movement, because what you're going to find is all those those challenges that you're finding in terms of finding people nowadays, they're literally right there. And you just have to provide the opportunity and then let the, and then and then step back and let them fly. Well, you know, Marty, it's been said many times that the best social program in the world is a job. Absolutely. Best social program is a job. Absolutely. <laughs> you provide those opportunities. Absolutely. And, 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 and the other thing, the other thing that gets said all the time that we, we need to really keep underscoring, right, is this whole idea, right, that talent and hope, talent and hope are equally distributed, but opportunity is not. Listen, I could go on with this one. This is one that really touches my heart because, as I said, I cut my teeth with Leon Sullivan and job training, getting people second chances at life through through employment, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I wanted to, to shift just a little bit and talk about your work in particular and how it intersects with charity, aside from, you know, just what you're doing through, through the employment piece. And what I want to talk about, Marty, is how organizations can think about scaling. So uh, for for most people, they don't know that nonprofits actually try to grow. <laughs> you know, they just kind of think that they just fell out of the sky. They've been doing a certain amount of work, but actually nonprofits do have to go through transformations. They were one thing when they started, the environment changes, they shift, they have to change their organizations. And there's also situations where 
they see that they're doing a great program and they want to make it available to more people. How do they go about this? And I know your organization at Accenture is in the business of helping clients go through transformations and helping them find ways to scale their operations. What have you seen with the charity sector in particular that presents some opportunities for organizations? How should organizations think about this? And how should their supporters and stakeholders think about supporting them through those processes, Mari? Yeah, so great question, Art. And, and, and Art, I want to come back to something you said at the very outset of the program, which was so important, right? Which is, I've been honored to work in for-profit, nonprofit, and government, right? Yeah. And we have this tendency and this mindset, Art, I think sometimes to think, oh, well, business has so much to teach nonprofits and business has yeah. so much to teach government. I would actually make the argument that each sector has something to teach the other sector, and really important and valuable lessons. Like right now in, in corporate America, we're still trying to figure out what nonprofits have gotten right for so long, which is this intersection between purpose and mission and what brings people to work and what makes them stay at work and what gets them, we use this term engagement scores, right? But what makes them yeah. so engaged? Nonprofits have figured that out ages before we have, right? And we need mm -hmm. to learn from them and what they're doing and how they're doing it and build on this sense of, of purpose as we go forward uh, if we're going to be successful moving forward. Nonprofits are also a lot grittier and thriftier. They're almost, in many, in many cases, they're almost the equivalent in business of the entrepreneurial startup, right? And, it, yeah. and back in my time as, you know, growing up in the, in the AmeriCorps movement, I would compare favorably all of the social entrepreneurs with those that are tech entrepreneurs in my in my current line of work right the the same folks that were creating teach for america and city here and public allies and kip and all of these amazing social inventions and these amazing social enterprises they can teach us so much just like all the tech entrepreneurs can right and so i, I just I, I really think it's important to know that all three sectors need to work together on the greatest issues of our time and they need to have a sense of understanding about why each sector exists and the strengths and weaknesses and the incentives and the structures of, of all three in order to optimize how we can work together on those great issues of our time. Yeah. Next, going to your specific question that you were just asking in terms of you know, how do, do nonprofits need to transform and how do they scale? A couple things that I would say in that regard. The first is it is critical as all nonprofits have both shareholders and stakeholders from the standpoint of folks that are going to be vested in them, that are going to be investing in them, that are going to be uh, caring about what they do and wanting them to do it as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And yes, that's not the traditional definition of a shareholder that a business would have. But I think it's important that as business is coming to this reckoning of understanding that I have to be about both shareholders and stakeholders, nonprofits have to do the same as well. And as we go forward, you're going to have increasing uh, expectations, whether that's from uh, foundations or whether that's from government or whether that is from individual donors of nonprofits being able to measure and articulate the value that they are providing and to constantly be willing to go through this process, this very dynamic and increasingly challenging process that businesses are going through, which is we are constantly having to reinvent ourselves. We're constantly having to remake ourselves. And that 
that process is only accelerating, one, with the changes in the geopolitical network and system, the changes that are happening in terms of technology and all the forces that are out there changing us around technology. And then last but not least, all of the economic disruptions that are taking place. And those same three factors are, are affecting nonprofits, and they're going to have to continue to think about, how do I increase my impact? How do I increase my impact and become more efficient at the same time? How do I partner with the private sector? How do I partner with government? How do I partner with other nonprofits in order to better effectuate the outcomes that I'm having in terms of my mission? And then last but not least, how can I use technology in operating in this hybrid world and hybrid environment to have even more impact and do so, at, at a, again, at a, at a better price point as I move forward? Well, I heard a study that was done some years ago over a 20-year stretch, I think ending in about 20, 2012. And the study basically concluded, Marty, that a company at the top of its industry, meaning they had the best product, let's say, in a particular industry, mm-hmm. they had four years before another competitor would come along and make that product a bit obsolete or not profitable anymore. And that was back in 2012. So if it was four years then, I can't imagine it it got any wider. It probably got more narrower. That's right. Which means that entities have to constantly be looking for the next opportunity to improve or to serve. So I'm sure the same is true with nonprofits. I've certainly found that in my part of the world. And you probably see that in organizations that you that you uh, volunteer with as well, Marty, that their business models constantly are under attack. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to your point, right? Like disruptions coming, disruptions coming for you, right? Like that's how, (laughs) right? That's the easiest way to think about it, right? And it's coming, it's coming sometimes to your individual business, but right now because of the, of the onset and the rapid pace at which technology is transforming us, it's coming for whole sectors of the economy. It's coming for whole industries, right? And trust me, it's coming for nonprofits. And there has to be this willingness to try new things, to do new things, to try new models, to try new public-private partnerships, to be willing to be evidence-based, uh, to be willing to to say, hey, can we try something like a 403B? Can we try something different? How do we look at new ways of generating income or revenue? How do we look for new partnerships that we might not have thought about before? What can technology do for us? Like asking these questions. And then art in terms of, you know, as you're describing the pace of change, folks, if you're doing a 10-year strategy, just stop. Don't even start. Like (laughs) it's a waste of time. You're doing a five-year strategy, just stop. Don't even start. Nobody does anything that's even trying to look three years out doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah, you can do a three-year strategy, but you better have interim checkpoints about what you're going to do year after year after year, if not every six months. Like that's where we are in terms of the pace of change. Yeah. And I, I hear also that it's important to look far enough out too that you're you're thinking more about what to get to, but not so much how, because the how is going to be very variable in this messy three to five year period that none of us can predict. But, you know, if you're if you're an organization and your goal is to cure cancer, okay, great, let's cure cancer. But let's not get too specific about how we go about it, because the opportunities and the challenges are going to be very different 
from one year to the next and we have to stay remain aware of them so yeah you're absolutely right with these it's the how part that is that's going to be so challenging for organizations to figure out yep marty um going going into a field that you're in gave you some vantage points you know it gave you the opportunity to work along with companies and nonprofits as well what do you see as some of the true opportunities for collaboration among let's say businesses and nonprofits and if you can't say specifically what are some of the drivers that aside from what we just discussed might partner these organizations a lot more than maybe what we've seen in the past. Yeah, so Art, I think that's a fantastic question. I mean, the first thing I would just say is, you know, I had the opportunity to work across for-profit, nonprofit, and government. And that idea first came from an individual by the name of uh, Dr. Cliff Wharton. Dr. Cliff Wharton was the first African-American CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and he had been an undersecretary of state. He had been the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and he had also been a college president. And so when I was coming out of undergrad and he got named the, you know, the first African-American CEO of, I think, I think it was TIAA, CREF, now called just TIAA, I was like, wow, like that's what I want to do. That's what I want my career to be. And so I started in for-profit. Then I went to nonprofit at the Children's Defense Fund with Marion Wright Edelman. Then I worked at the Hill, as I talked about before. And then I went and actually did service work before going to grad school and before joining Accenture. And the great thing that has been true for me at my career is at Accenture, I've been able to do, again, for-profit, nonprofit, and government all while staying at Accenture. And so one of the things that I was able to do at Accenture was to start our for-profit nonprofit practice. And we now, I believe, have the largest of the of the nonprofit practices of any of the, the major consulting firms. And what I have seen over the last several years, you know, we started this roughly a little over 15 years ago. And as the practice has grown, there has been more emphasis of for-profits and nonprofits working together. And one of the key attributes there is what we spoke about before, Art, is which is trying to get it to be a relationship that is no longer just based on the cost side or on the corporate citizenship side, on the charity side, but moving it first and foremost over to the business side, right? Like how can these two organizations partner where you're on the business side of the business and you're and you're in the mission side of the of the nonprofit. And that's really where the magic happens and that's where the greatest promise and the greatest opportunity happens. It's also the way that it's the most sustainable in terms of impact, right? Because you're you're meeting a core need of the business and you're meeting a, a core need of the nonprofit and the synergies take place from there. So there's a, a variety of different examples, right? Of you know how nonprofits and businesses can work together and do so in terms of having more and more impact. But the best ones, again, are when it's on the business side and when it's mission side for, for the nonprofit. The other thing that I would just share with you is we've worked with a number of different nonprofit organizations in terms of them actually starting their own revenue generating uh, businesses and opportunities. We've done it with uh, an organization that, in, and again, the best way for doing that is when it's in keeping directly with your mission, not kind of a side thing right. that has nothing to do with your core mission or your core brand for the nonprofit. And so working with nonprofits, one recent example, we worked with the National Wildlife Federation, and they launched a new effort where they are in the business now of helping people get 
native plants so that they can have more native species that in turn will help uh, with the local wildlife. Another example, we worked a long time ago with the Alzheimer's Association, which was creating a technology product to help those that were uh, suffering from dementia. At the time, which is still the case, one of the greatest stressors to our uh, public safety system, uh, both police as well as firefighters, is when uh, folks that are dealing with uh, dementia go missing are displaced. And so that was a, a for-profit that they launched as part of the Alzheimer's Association to, again, meet a need in keeping with their core mission. Same thing with the National Wildlife Federation that in turn helped uh, provide revenue for the organization. And then the third and final thing that I would just mention in terms of kind of where this nexus is coming together and where it works best is actually partnerships that can bring together the uh, for-profit, the non-profit with government and help all three scale together. And that last area, there's been plenty of examples in the international arena, as well as even with things around things like our ability to respond to the COVID pandemic, where for-profit, non-profit, and government came together to make a difference in terms of saving lives, in terms of uh, health equity, and in terms of you know getting uh, life-saving uh, drugs into the uh, arms of, of folks that otherwise wouldn't have been able to do so. Wow. Well, Marty, we're, I hate to say, running short on time here, but I, I want to ask if I could one final question. And it's on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In my last podcast episode, Marty, I talked a lot about this. And I talked about it um, because I felt that we have some opportunities now because of the business case as well as the moral case for it to, to really drive change and to eliminate barriers for people so that everyone can have a chance to achieve what they were put here to do, so to speak. And Marty, I want to know, because you're someone who lived it, you, you grew up with it. What, did, what are you seeing that encourages you and what are you seeing that still concerns you? Yeah, so Art, thanks for that final question and, and I really appreciate it. I, I, um, I'm normally a glass half full type of guy, so I'm going to give you probably more that, that encourages me than, than not. Um, but let me just let me just start with a, a couple of things. The first is what I said before, which is we will either grow inclusively, right? We will either find a way to increase the size of the pie and to lift all boats, or we can't get there, right? Like unless we invite all to be to realize their full potential, unless we uh, make it possible and real, then we're just short circuiting. We're, we're undercutting our own competitiveness as a country and as a nation. And if we don't figure out a way to engage all of us in becoming the most competitive nation uh, possible, then our overall future in terms of wealth creation, not just for those without, but for those that currently you know, have the resources that, that are already on the path, we're short circuiting our ability to, to, to optimize that in the future. The second thing that I would just say in terms of this journey around diversity and equity and inclusion is, Yes, it is a hard one. And yes, it is a journey. You know, you're constantly learning. You're constantly getting better at it. But it makes all of us better 
And if you come back to this notion of a business case, many years ago, we made the decision that if we were going to go from number two to number one in the industry, and if we were going to grow faster than the rest of the industry, we not only had to invest in innovation, but a key part of investing in innovation had to be investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so we moved down this path. We sought and we have become the most diverse and inclusive firm in North America, according to Diversity Inc., and we've become the most diverse and inclusive firm on the planet, according to Refinitiv. But those accolades are nice. But what's even nicer is the fact that we have moved from number two to number one in the industry. And because we made this transformational commitment to diversity, we have been able to become the most innovative company in our industry and to grow exponentially faster than anybody else in our industry are. And so just to make it clear and to make it plain, yes, the moral arguments are great, but at the end of the day, as I like to say, Accenture, it really likes black and brown, but it loves green. (laughs) And we're getting a lot more green because we are more diverse. We're getting a lot more green because we have, we're heading towards gender parity in a tech business, right? Unheard of, right? But we're going to hit gender parity somewhere around 20, 2024, 2025. Wow. And this commitment, this striving towards this commitment has made all of us better and it has made the pie infinitely bigger, right? Because now we find ourselves, even though we're, we've moved from two to, two to one in the industry, we're still putting more, more distance between us and everybody else, right? And the way that we're doing that is because now we can't afford to be the fast follower anymore. We have to be the innovative leader from the front. We also have to have access to the best talent, which diversity makes possible, as well as the most innovative thinking. And then last but not least, in terms of the critical nature of what diversity is doing for us, our ability to demonstrate that diversity is the way that we show our people that we care and that we want them to bring their full selves to the workplace and to lead based on how their own unique experiences and their own unique journey and story, that sign of caring and concern has made us, again, much better than than our competitors in terms of retention. And for us, that is a huge, huge deal. Well, I'll say to everyone in corporate America, you're hearing how a firm rose to number one by making sure that it was a diverse organization as well. So that's the, that's the business case. That's the business. That's absolutely right. And and the other key thing, right, is our CEO will, will tell you that when she's talking to outside group that happens to be diverse or an inside group, like one of our diversity ERGs, but she'll also tell you that on our earnings report. Mm -hmm. She'll also (laughs) tell you that when she's talking to our investors. Amen. Make sure you listen to both. I will. Marty, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate what you've given us here. And I know that there are many who are listening and who are in corporate America and trying to find a way to give back, trying to find a way to manage their time such that they can make a commitment. I think they've learned a lot from you, that there are many ways to do it. There are ways to do it as part of your company. There are ways to do it outside of your company. And so Again, just tremendous, tremendous thanks. And I'm going to continue to wish you well. You know, I've been following you now for about 20 years since I first met you at an independent sector gathering and have always been impressed by what you stand for 
and for how you lead and how you give back, my friend. So, so thank you. Thank you, Art. I want to say to all of our listeners, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. If this is the first time checking in, I hope you'll subscribe. And if you want to make a donation to the Heart of Giving podcast, you can do so by making a gift at givegive.org. Thank you all for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.